Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Have you ever been driving through a major city and you've got your bearings, you know what road you're on, you know, north, south, east, west, and then you, you take your exit and it's one of those that loops around up and down over and through the woods and it kind of spits you out like a hot wheel and for a panicky moment, you, you kind of lose your sense of direction and you wonder, am I on the right road? You know, what direction am I going now because you've been so spinned around by that loop? You know, so the first thing you do is you kind of look to the sign, you know, because they usually they put one pretty quickly. You're on this road, headed what direction? And you're kind of glad to get your equilibrium. Or maybe even more challenging if you're hiking uh, or maybe hunting and you get off the trail and then maybe the sun's no help and you're trying to find your way back. And you're thinking, wait, this looks familiar or does it look familiar? You know, you kind of lose your equilibrium. To me, what's worse than that? I'd rather be out in the woods doing that than to go to Opry Mills Mall. You know what I'm talking? Have you been there? It's a loop. Did that once, and I came out the store, and I didn't know which way to go. I think I walked for three days, you know, and didn't see anything familiar. Um, but we all know that feeling, don't we? Evidently, did you know that becoming disoriented is a main factor in surviving an avalanche? Now, we don't deal with that. We've got tornadoes, other things we deal with. But for an avalanche, becoming disoriented is evidently a big deal. A common mistake that people get caught when they get covered by all the snow. According to Popular Science Magazine, they gave an example of a guy who was found dead from an avalanche. It was determined that he had dug 30 feet deeper into the snow. How awful is that? But the article said you can't trust your instinct. Don't trust what feels right. Because it does tell you what to do. You want to know what to do? I'll tell you what to do. They said to spit. So if you think you're going up, you spit. If it comes back hitting your face, you're going the right direction. If not, you turn around and you, and you do it again. I thought, well, that'd be good to know. Aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> but you need a reality check is what the article was talking about. Don't trust your instinct. When you think you're going up, you may be going down. When Jesus came on the scene, that's really what he found himself having to do is give people a reality check. Because people thought they had the right perspective because they've been heard this all their life. This was a common, it was reinforced by the culture around them. And Jesus came along and said, you've heard it said, but I say unto you. So he would quote their misunderstanding, their misinterpretation of the law, and he would kind of correct their thinking, their way of seeing things. I've titled these lessons, Seeing Jesus' Way, because that's what he does constantly in his teaching. He tells, tells us how to look at life in a way that's not just countercultural. Sometimes it's counterintuitive. It's not the way we think. We think up when we should go down. We think left when we should go right. And Jesus' way of seeing things did not, go, not just go against this widely held belief. Still today, it does the same. Jesus' teaching is misunderstood and sometimes, those of us who wear his name, we get it wrong. In Luke chapter 18, we're going to see him do it again. And I want you to notice a very familiar theme, specifically how people are putting the focus of faith on the outside. Now, God has always looked at the heart. This is not a New Testament, Jesus is on the scene and we change the game kind of thing. God has always looked at the heart. 
And yet mankind seems to always put the focus on the outside, on looking right, dressing right, appearing right, following the right rules. And Jesus confronts that and says, no, 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 no. Faith starts on the inside. But before we read Luke's gospel, I want you to look at the screen at Matthew 23, verses 27 and 28. This is an indictment of Jesus against the religious leader of his day. And it's blunt, but it needed to be said because it really illustrates, helps us to understand what was going on in that day. Jesus said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Last week, we talked about a time where Jesus studied or visited in the home of Simon the Pharisee, and there he turned everything upside down. He rebukes this Pharisee, this well-respected, had-it-all-together leader, and he commends the prostitute, the broken mess. Well, he does the same thing in Luke chapter 18. I put on the top of your outline the verse, is kind of the theme of the whole teaching, Luke 18, 14, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. But note what he's saying here. He was challenging everything that they had experienced culturally, that they, they had been taught, that we're taught today. If you want to be exalted, you don't make much of yourself. You don't relentlessly climb up the ladder. You go down the ladder. You don't prove yourself better than others by the way you look on the outside, by the way you dress, the car you drive, the way you carry yourself. If you want to be exalted, Jesus says you humble yourself. So in Luke chapter 18, it's not a real story like it was last week. That one really happened. This one, Jesus sort of makes up this parable to illustrate this truth that we all need to know. Now notice there's two characters here. The first one's the Pharisee. We talked about him some last week. This was not just the religious leader of the Jews of that day. More than that, it was also the cultural leader, the religious leader, the political leader. If you were a Pharisee, you were all that. You were at the top of the ladder. And the other person in the story is the tax collector. Now, we think we know what that means, but I'm not sure that we fully do. Because nobody likes to pay taxes, but don't think of him as a first century IRS agent. Think of him as an embezzler. Think of someone who takes money from good, honest people and then, and then keeps it for himself instead of investing it. One who scams people. He's not an auditor who's trying to make sure the books are right. He's a thief. He sold out his own people to the Roman government, and he is making tons of money. Now, think about that. If you want to know where to put this guy on the social ladder, last week we had the Pharisee and this woman that most believe was the, the, the prostitute. The tax collector would be below the prostitute in the eyes of these people in that culture. Notice the two opposite ends of the spiritual spectrum. This Pharisee, the religious leader, seems holy and right. This tax collector that everybody hates. Everybody deserves, not, should not just go to hell, but go to the bottom of hell. That's how everybody felt about this person. And then watch how Luke shares the story, how he opens it. Luke 18, verse 9, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is the English Standard Version. Some translations say, look down on everyone else. So who are these people? 
who are confident in their own righteousness, who look down on everyone else. Well, if you read this and you don't think it's talking about you, then it's talking about you. Okay? Now, if you don't get that, it just proves that you don't get that. You just self-identified. But that's the crowd that he's talking with here. Look what he says, verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So the Pharisee begins his prayer in a good way in that he gives thanks to God. That's awesome that he gives thanks to God. But look at what he's thankful for. He's thankful that he's better than other people. God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. Now, here's where it gets tricky. You and I read that and go, "Mm, how could he do that? And we've just said, I am so much better than him. You see? I mean, you read this story and you become the one who's guilty because I'm so glad I'm not like him. God, I'm so glad I'm not like him. We do it too. Instead of quickly deducing we're not like this guy, maybe we need to think a moment that we're just like him. We may not say to God, God, I thank you I'm not like these other people. But there's thoughts that we do have, and maybe even some statements that we say that reflect the exact same heart. Let me share a few. One thing we might think or even say is, you're not going to talk to me like that. You ever heard that? You ever said that? You ever thought that? You're never going to talk to me that way? When somebody points out your faults, your weakness, we don't always take that well. But instead of hearing the message in humility, we attack the messenger Pride takes over. We become defensive. We're not open to correction. We all need correcting from time to time, but our pride doesn't make that easy. Here's another thing we might think or say, I'm not going to be the one to apologize. They can apologize, but I'm not going to be the one to apologize. Pride thrives on conflict, especially on certain things. Proverbs 13.10 says, pride only breeds quarrels. When I value being right in an argument more than I value the relationship, then I've got a problem. When I want to win the fight more than keep a friend, then pride has taken over my heart. Maybe you heard the saying, you can be oh so right and yet oh so wrong. That's what we're talking about here. Pride keeps us from acknowledging that we're wrong, refusing to say I'm sorry. Here's another thing we might think or say, it's not me, it's you. It's not my problem, it's your problem. See, pride puts people under a microscope, and we see all their faults, and it lets ourselves off the hook. Jesus said, you remember his words where we point out the speck in a brother's eye? We got a plank in our own. Pride distorts our vision. It blinds your own weakness, and it magnifies other people's faults. And we all deal with this. Pride makes us do this. It happens to us more than we know. We have a hard time recognizing it in ourselves. Here's another thing we might think or say. It's not fair. It's not fair. If I think of myself as the same as somebody else or better, and they get something good and I don't, well, that's not fair. And if we don't say it, we at least think it. How do you know when you have this kind of pride? 
Well, maybe one way to know is when something good happens to someone and you have a hard time celebrating with them. Romans 12, 15 says rejoice with those who rejoice. And when we don't, when you're not feeling it, that's pride getting in the way. Here's one. Might cause us to think or even to say on this one, did you hear about? There's something about our pride that we love being able to share something bad about someone else. That's a pride problem. Or what about this one? Pride may cause us to say something like, I don't need help. I don't need help. That's pride too. We think, I can do it by myself. You notice the Pharisee doesn't ask God for help. He thanks God, but he doesn't ask God for help. He's quite, doing quite well on his own. And he even tells God how well he's doing. When you read this parable and you think, how could anyone miss it so much? I think we need to kind of turn that back around and say, how could I miss it so much? See, Jesus wants us to learn from these two people. They're make-believe. He makes these up, and yet they're so representative of real people, then and now. So let's learn from the Pharisee. A couple of things. When we focus faith on the outside like the Pharisees were doing, what was common in that day among a lot of people, but the Pharisees were so good at it, it inevitably means that we turn faith into performance. That's what happens. That's where it always leads. When our faith is focused outward, then our faith becomes about how we look, how we present ourselves, how others see us, when people are watching us. And Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for that. Matthew 23, verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. That's what he's talking about here. This man, and I would say all the Pharisees were doing some good things, right? He even shared that fasting twice a week, tithing. How many in this room fast twice a week or give 10%? That's some pretty good things, and he's doing these. I don't think he's lying about this. I think he really was doing this. But seeing Jesus' way, Jesus sees beyond just rote obedience, and he realizes, yeah, but your heart's right. You've missed the whole picture here. Jesus knows their good deeds are just for show. They've missed it. They weren't seeking God. They weren't sacrificing for the Lord. It was all about appearing right, all about other people seeing them. They wanted the credit for everybody looking. Now, lest we think, wow, these Pharisees were just so vain. They were just so blind. Maybe we need to look in the mirror. Maybe you and I can be just like this and yet not able to see it in ourselves. Social media makes this especially easy for even Christians to fall into. Have you seen this cartoon? Kind of says it all, doesn't it? It's about appearances, about the outside. I think instinctively we approach it this way. Others seeing us do good. We post the pictures of the kids when they get their matching outfit and the hair's in place. Not as they were bickering in the bathroom getting ready. Are about to take each other's head off on the car before we got to the photo shoot, right? We just post the best image. And, and we doctor it up and we filter it and we put it out there. We want everybody to see the best. And it's so far from reality. You create the best version of yourself and you post that. And here's what happens. I mean, social media is it, but it happens to other things too. People, people like it and they like it and they like it. And they say all these things about it. Looking good, love this family, great person. 
And there's this line that I've always struggled with, beautiful inside and out. Is that that okay? It's like, why why do we say that? Because we can't just say they're beautiful. We have to say inside and out, like, okay, it's more than that. But I think social media is just sort of like a window into the hearts of all of us. You don't have to be online to struggle with this. All of us deal with this. It only shows the best of us, the angle that we present, that we conjure up, put us in the best light. If we're not careful, we start valuing ourselves by how many likes we get, by the comments that follow. It is like an addictive drug. Well, something else that happens when we make our focus on the outside, we compare ourselves with other people, just like this Pharisee. And pride, of course, directs our hearts to compare down with those that we excel over. We do right, they do wrong. We excel, they miss the mark. And again, I think social media takes, makes this even more challenging because if we present this better-than-life, stage-cropped, filtered picture that that's the way it really is, it's all just a farce. And you compare that to the shortcomings of other people, that's just pride, and pride wins every time. Notice one more thing the Pharisees did. When you focus faith on the outside, you put confidence in yourself, in your own accomplishments, not in Jesus our Lord. When we focus our attention to what people see, on the things we do well, and notice this Pharisee, he boasts, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I get. Leviticus 16 talks about fasting one day a year as required by God's law. He's fasting twice a week. They've made another law, and he's keeping that man-made law. But he's missed the whole point of fasting. The whole point of fasting is seeking the heart of God. He fasts twice a week, but he's missed it. He's turned it inside out. He's missed the whole purpose of it. For him, it's a religious accomplishment. Warren Wiersbe said this, Look, the great sin of the Pharisee was hypocrisy based on pride. Their religion was external, not internal. It was to impress people, not to please God. And they bound people with heavy burdens while Christ came to set people free. They loved titles. They loved public recognition. They exalted themselves. And then this is important. He says they exalted themselves at the expense of other people. So learn from the Pharisees. But also learn from the tax collector. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Where is he standing? Far off. Some translations say at a distance. What is that telling you? He's not doing that to be seen. He's at a distance. So nobody notices. This is between him and God. Contrary to the Pharisee, this is not a show. He doesn't want anybody even to know. He's standing at a distance. This is not damage control. He's not trying to win approval. He's not covering up his mess. He stands at a distance. Really, we could stop right there and just ask the question, when's when's the last time you've prayed to God at a distance? far off. Now, with your family at a time that's kind of your normal, or maybe before a meal or in a church setting, just you praying to God. Notice that he would not even look up to heaven. So aware of his sinfulness, his brokenness, so aware of God's holiness, 
That spirit of humility beat his chest. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Why is that important? Because it's showing where he's looking, how he sees things. He really, there's emotion here. It's not this familiar worded prayer that just kind of flows. This is his heart talking. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He is broken. And we talked about that last week. He's so aware of that. Now, the contrast in this parable could not be more extreme. The Pharisee, who thinks God should be quite impressed with him because he follows all the rules and even adds to them and keeps all of those as well, and the tax collector who simply cries out, God, have mercy on me. Because what else can he say? There's no excuses. There's nothing to say. Just like what happened last week in Simon's house, Jesus then takes this parable and turns it upside down and inside out. He rebukes the prayer of the Pharisee and commends the prayer of the tax collector. Look at verse 14. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, let's be clear about this. Jesus knows about his fasting. Jesus knows about his, you might even say, excessive fasting. Jesus knows about his tithing, his his consistent, routine, generous giving. He knows about this. He knows he's given 10% of gross, not net. This guy is giving a lot of money. He's fasting twice a week. And Jesus is in no way saying that this is not good. That's not the point at all. But what he knows is that the tax collector needed mercy. That's what he needed. Jesus sees it all. Not just our best version of ourselves that we put out there. Jesus said this, I put it on the screen, there's no substitute for humbling yourself before God. He's not saying obedience is not important, that you shouldn't tithe, that you shouldn't fast, that you shouldn't obey. You should keep the laws of God, but it starts here. There is no substitute for humbling yourself before God. We don't want to hear that because we don't want to do that. It just goes against everything within us. Instead, we say, you know, give me a list to do. Give me five things to obey. The Pharisee had two things listed here. Give me five steps. Give me ten steps. Give me a list of seven. I want a checklist so I can do those things and I can feel good about, we wouldn't say it, but myself. And feel like I've obeyed and I've done what I'm supposed to do. And Jesus said, Well, there are things you're supposed to do, but it starts here. And if you don't start here and stay here, then all of those don't matter. Is that not what he's teaching here? So here's the challenge of the lesson. If anybody's kind of warm, as Bill was saying, they went to sleep, you know, the cold weather's not made their intellect, wake them up. I want you to get this. Challenge you to humble yourself. You may be so familiar with this story, because it is well known, but maybe you missed this. What do you do to humble yourself? What do you do to humble yourself? You know what he says here? You humble yourself. See, when you think of being humbled, it's like something that's done to us, you know? 
Like they got their comeuppance, you know, or they learned their lesson. You know, it's like this experience that humbles them. You know, they lost their job or, or some bad thing happened in their family also, and that humbles them. We think of it that way, you know, because all of us need that from time to time. We kind of get full of ourselves and we need humbling, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the circumstances of life or other people humbling you. He says, you humble yourself. What do you do? To humble yourself. Because that's the command. That's what he says here. It's not passive. It's active. Let me give you an example. I read about a guy named Nick Walenda. Maybe you've heard of him. Quite famous, actually. In 2012, he walked the tightrope across the Niagara Falls. 2013, he became the first person to high-wire walk the Grand Canyon. Some of you are thinking, just give me an avalanche. You know, we don't want that, right? Guinness Book of World Records, crowds of thousands would come to watch him. Here's what you also need to know about him. He considers his Christian faith to be a central aspect of his life, and he also is aware of his own pride. So for hours after this event, when thousands of people come to watch him, all the spotlight is on him, and he excels, and he gets all the attention for the next three hours... He spends his time cleaning up the trash from the crowd. Listen to his words. Three hours of cleaning up debris is good for my soul. Humility does not come naturally to me, so I have to force myself into situations that are humbling. So be it. I do it because it's a way of keeping me from tripping. As a follower of Jesus, I see him washing the feet of others. I do it because if I don't intentionally serve others, I'll be serving nothing but my own ego. The Bible uses that same image of a tightrope walker. Proverbs 16, 18, pride comes before a fall. He understands, Nick does, if he doesn't, if he doesn't do something, actively do something, he'll become prideful. Let me go out on a limb here, no pun intended, and say the same for you and me. If you don't, if I don't do something intentionally to humble yourself, pride's going to be a problem. And parents, we need to be careful with this as we rear our children because we can treat our children like celebrities. You ever found yourself doing this, seeing others do this? where they excel in sports, they win the championship, they get an ACT of 30, that they get the, the lead role in the play, they do whatever it is, and we give them a free pass. That hit me years ago when I thought, you know, we need to celebrate when they do well, yes. But a good friend of mine in Alabama, before we moved here, our kids were in middle school, and I was watching him because he had just stellar children, three just great kids, but his oldest was Charlie. And Charlie, I can't remember what it was because he went on to college and he did great things there too. And, uh, but I think it was high school and might have been president of a senior class that he won. And when he got home from the election and he won in school that day, you know how they celebrated? With Charlie mowing the grass. Because it was Friday and that's what Charlie did on Fridays. And I thought, I need to remember that. You know, you can celebrate their accomplishments, but all of us need to stay grounded and just remember. No one set a better example of this than Jesus. 
the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Look at the screen in Philippians 2, verses 5 and 8. Paul describes what this looked like. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. So the challenge of this lesson, the challenge of Jesus' teaching here is not to be humbled, but to humble yourself. So let me give you a couple of ways maybe to think about how this might work for you. If I'm going to humble myself, that means I need to voluntarily confess sin. That's a good place to start. Now, if I confess sin because I got caught That's humbling, but I've not humbled myself. If I confess sin because somebody confronts me, it's humbling, but I'm not humbling myself. Choosing to confess to God my sin is humbling. You can cover it up. You can put on a show. You can pretend to others that you don't have a sin problem. But that's just the opposite of what we're talking about here. And you're not going to be exalted Jesus said you must humble yourself. Another way to humble yourself is to give selflessly and anonymously. Just the opposite of what this Pharisee was doing, telling people about it. When you give anonymously, it keeps you from being exalted by others because nobody knows. You're not posting a picture of it. It's keeping your heart humble. And when you give sacrificially, because we know the New Testament doesn't tell us to give 10%, but we are told to give sacrificially. To the point where it means there's something I gave up to give this much. That's humbling because you do without. That can be where you need to start with humbling yourself. Or here's a third one. Treat others better than yourself. Treat others better than yourself. Paul says simply in Philippians 2, 3, that same chapter, in humility count others more significant than yourselves. One translation says, think of others better than yourself. And this is so upside down, so backwards from our culture, everything else we're told, everything that's reinforced to us. You let others go first. You let them have the best seat, the best parking spot. You let them, you let them, you let them, you prefer, you allow them. You are putting other people first. You're humbling yourself. You're treating them like they're better than you. You're putting their needs ahead of your own. You humble yourself. And then God will exalt you. Number four, I need to pay attention in my life. I need to be willing to ask for help. Or just let somebody help you. That can be a humbling thing. We're so used to being independent as adults, pulling our own weight, paying our own bills, opening our own door, doing our own thing. That when our health fails us, when life smacks us down, when we're in a situation, when we're over our head, we're going to swallow a lot of pride to say, I need help. Or sometimes even just let somebody help you. But that may be exactly what you need to do to humble yourself. It's humbling to say, I've made a mess of this, I made some wrong choices. I don't know how to get out on my own. I need help. So you humble yourself. 
I probably should have put about five more blanks on there for some other things that you've already thought of, how you can humble yourself. In fact, that's the question. What, what's one way this week you can humble yourself? What's the one thing? Where is your pride? Ask Jesus, help me see your way to see myself and go, how do I need to humble myself? Because in Philippians 2, Paul just shares our attitude should be the same as Christ, who humbled himself. And then that's not the end of the story. Look at the screen, Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. And gave him the name that is above every name. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself, even to the point of death. And it looked like to the whole world that he lost. Satan thought he won. But the whole time was part of the plan. God exalted him. And that's the example we follow. And here's what that tells us. Because he did that, because God exalted him at the right time, there is a day coming when everyone will be humbled. And it's really just a matter of choice. You can humble yourself and fall to your knees, or on that day, you'll be struck down to your knees. It's a matter of choice. See, there is no salvation, there is no being a Christian, there is no following Jesus, there is no going to church, there is no nothing that matters until you get this one. Humble yourself. That's where you come to know you need God. Our invitation is to encourage you to do just that. To humble yourself and know I can't make it on my own, I can't save myself, I can't do enough good things to earn my salvation. It's only because of what Jesus did on the cross. And if today you're ready to confess your faith in him, have your sins washed away in baptism, we want to help you with that. Or if we can just pray for you, whatever your problem may be, if maybe today you just need to ask for help, maybe that's what you can do to humble yourself. We want to be there and to pray for and to help you. Why don't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you.